Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. chapter 8 today. If you remember last week, Graham took us through the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It ended in Matthew chapter 7, and we learned about building our life on a firm foundation, right? The foundation of God's Word. So today as we begin, I want to draw your attention to the end of chapter 7. The last two verses say this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So he was preaching as one with authority. So chapter 8 begins with him coming down the mountain and having a crowd follow him. But as we'll see, this idea of Jesus having authority uh, is a big theme that we're going to see today. So as we begin, I just want to ask a question. If you wanted to build a large following, if you wanted to have a lot of followers, what would you do? I suspect many of us would follow a similar uh, script. We would probably want to highlight the good things we're doing, if we want to build a following, have people follow our advice, highlight the good things we're doing. We'd probably want everyone to go and as fast as possible spread our message. We would definitely want to emphasize how easy our advice is or how easy it is to follow us, how convenient it can be for your schedule. And these general principles we understand. Don't ever overemphasize hardship, right? Make things sound easy and fun and enjoyable. And spread the word. But we're going to see today that Jesus does the opposite of some of these things. Jesus' goal is not to have a ton of sort of half-hearted followers who want to follow him at their own convenience. Rather, he's after disciples. Disciples who see him as their authority. And that will be the theme of our text today. So let's dive into chapter 8. I'll start with verses 1 through 4. We'll be going through verse 22 today. But our main theme is that Jesus has authority over all things. And that includes each of our lives. So let's begin by reading the first four verses of chapter 8. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So we see here that Jesus has authority over leprosy, over this disease. And again, as we just talked about, this comes after the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down the mountain and he's ministering in and around Galilee and Capernaum. And these are areas that are primarily the the, the land of the Israelites, right? These are primarily among first century Jews that he's talking to. So in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've talked about a little bit in previous sermons, right, he's taking the Old Testament law and he's sort of uh, interpreting it, not contradicting it, but fulfilling it and interpreting it in ways that many of the Jews would not have expected. And remember, we saw back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, 
that we see, uh, it says that Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So we've already seen him doing this teaching and preaching, and now we're going to see some healing. So he comes down the mountain, followed by crowds, and is approached by a leper. Now, lepers and leprosy are uh, sort of a big theme in the Bible. They have an interesting history. Leviticus 13 of 14, in the Old Testament law, they give many rules and regulations for what does it mean for someone to have leprosy, what do you do in that situation. Uh, it usually talks about just about any harmful skin disease would be considered leprosy. And there were pretty strict rules, right? It was thorough. You had to make a trip to the priest. You had to be examined. Uh, they told you how to treat it, what to do. But for most of these skin diseases, there wasn't a cure. Uh, they would spend their life, and there would be uh, no hope for a cure. And in order to keep the disease from spreading, the Old Testament law sort of forced those to quarantine. So Leviticus 13, 45, and 46 say, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let their hair of their head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So by Jesus' Jesus' day, many of the lepers lived in their own colonies outside the camp, right? They didn't have much human contact with with others. Uh, They were isolated. Um, And in Leviticus 14, it tells us that if they do get healed, there's a sacrifice to be made to the priest, which Jesus talks about. So why might this be significant? I think as we're going to see today, each of these stories of Jesus' healing uh, are important because they show that Jesus is going to marginalize people within the community. We see first a leper, then we're going to see a Gentile, later we're going to see a woman at the end. So what do we see in this leper? Well, first there's humility. It says the leper knelt before him. The leper demonstrates humility before Christ. He acknowledges Jesus' authority, and we see that he has faith when he says to Jesus, I know you can heal me if you will. The leper doesn't doubt Jesus' power. He does question Jesus' will. Is Jesus willing? The leper knew Jesus had the ability and the the power to heal him. And look, for many of us, I know, maybe all of us, we know someone who has a disease or a sickness. Sometimes we know Christians who have these diseases. Some of us know Christians who have died from diseases. And we often pray for those suffering that the Lord would heal them. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let the leper's words be our words, right? Lord, we know you can if it be your will. We should be reminded here that God does not uh, physically, if God does not physically heal someone we love, it's not a matter of his lack of power to do so, nor should we assume that there's any lack of goodness in in the Lord. Like this leper, we should uh, get out of our minds any idea of a transaction, any idea of presumption to put an obligation on God to heal, right? We don't pay God with X amount of faith and then he's required to uh, return the favor by healing uh, a physical ailment. The leper doesn't presume upon God. It's meant to teach that this faith uh, might not always result in physical healing despite uh, what we've heard otherwise. There are numerous places in scripture where Jesus sees a group uh, of those sick and doesn't heal all of them and chooses one or, or the other. And the leper recognizes Jesus' power and submits to his will. And I think we can be tempted to ask, why would a good God cause any pain or suffering at all? How could it not be his will to heal this person? 
how could Jesus possibly have looked upon this leper or someone like him and not been willing to heal? And there's a lot that we could say about the relationship between healing and suffering, pain and death, God's power versus God's will. So I'll suffice it to say that one of the best places to think about these things comes at the cross. At the cross, Jesus could have called down angels to save him. Jesus, in the garden before he was crucified, said, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will be done to the Father. Jesus suffered. He allowed the wrath of God to be poured out on him, wrath that should have come, come down on us, yet there's no doubt he had the power to end the suffering. But he was unwilling, and thankfully. Because at the cross, God was glorified, and God used it to bring salvation to us. He used suffering and death. He didn't use angels to rescue Jesus from all pain, nor let the cup pass, even though Jesus had the power to stop it. So thus, this leper says, if you will. And when we long for healing, let that be our prayer. We've talked much in various settings lately at Renaissance about the Lord's Prayer, and one of the first lines in it is, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a demonstration that we want God's will to be done. So let's not look at the leper and make one-to-one -one comparisons of, well, I know this person who's sick and they have faith. The leper was sick and he had faith, therefore God must heal, right? Again, the leper had faith that God could heal him, but he submitted to Jesus' authority. And if it had been for God's glory for him to remain a leper, he would have remained a leper. And as what I hope we see in each of these instances in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus does a miracle like this, when he heals someone, he often teaches us something about himself and his ministry. So what is he teaching here? Well, I believe here Jesus is making a point that we might miss since we aren't first century Jews. Because the thing is, according to Old Testament law, you cannot come into contact with someone with one of these diseases. You cannot touch them. If you do, you become unclean. Their uncleanliness gets passed to you. But what does Jesus do? It says he touches him and heals him. We'll see in our next section that Jesus didn't need to touch the leper. Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone to heal them. He can just say the word. To touch the leper is to get their uncleanness onto you, but not so with Jesus. Rather than be defiled by the uncleanliness of the leper, as they would have seen it, Jesus cleanses the unclean. Jesus is able to heal. Jesus is able to restore this uncleanliness of the leper does not defile Jesus, but the other way around. Like he had been doing in the Sermon on the Mount with much of the Old Testament law, Jesus turns their expectations on their head. He doesn't contradict the law, but he fulfills it, right? He makes the leper clean. So why might he have told him to say nothing to anyone? That too seems a bit strange, right? Well, I think back then, like today, as we'll see throughout this story, there are many who don't necessarily know what it means to follow Jesus, but they're happy to sign up for someone who can, you know, help heal physical ailments. We'll go into this in more detail later, but what we see is that Jesus is not after the biggest crowds or the most uh, acclaim. He wants people devoted to follow him. He knows what will happen as his fame spreads, and he knows that ultimate spiritual healing through his atoning work on the cross will be cheapened if those only follow him solely for his ability to cure physical ailments. Thus, as we'll see more in verses 18 to 22, we don't follow Jesus simply for the good things we can get from him. And this is the problem with the, what we might call the prosperity gospel, right? The teaching that Jesus, uh, if you believe in Jesus, your life will go well. That's unbiblical. 
Jesus wants to make sure that his healing doesn't give the impression that he exists purely as their genie, right? He tells the leper to fulfill the law and uh, to go uh, make his offering to the priest and then uh, to tell no one. So ultimately, we see that Jesus has authority over this disease. We see the leper come to him, submitting to his authority, realizing that Jesus has the power to heal him, but saying, Lord, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus does what would be unthinkable. He touches the leper, and he makes him clean. Jesus is able to make the unclean clean. He can heal. Let's go on to verses 5 through 13. It says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So we see here that Jesus has authority over suffering. And once again, we'll see that he uses this instance of healing to teach a specific lesson about himself to his hearers. And it's just a fascinating exchange. This centurion was a Gentile, right? He was a Roman soldier. He was sent in the, in the region, not there to protect the Israelites, not there to help God's people, right? He was part of the uh, uh, enemy. He was part of the occupying power. So to the first century Jewish mind, few people are farther from God than this Gentile who's been sent here to oppress God's people. And for many Jews of this time, they read the Old Testament with the idea of having a political Messiah, right? A Messiah who's going to come, overthrow the Romans, rule on earth, and make things great for God's people. So to them, a Roman centurion is the exact kind of person the Messiah would be against. He's the epitome of what they hated, right? So this, of course, makes Jesus' words about the centurion all the more shocking and powerful. He comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his servant. He recognizes Jesus' power and authority. And when Jesus offers to come into his home, he responds by saying, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord, and he demonstrates humility, right? You're not even worthy, or I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. He then compares Jesus' authority over disease to his authority over his soldiers, right? He says, when I give an order, it could be something that happens far away, but when I give an order, it gets done. When I say go, they go. When I say do this, they do it. And so Jesus, you don't need to come under my roof. You don't, all you need to do is say the word because you have great authority. Just say the word. But Jesus' response, right, is fascinating. In verse 10, he doesn't say, it doesn't say, when Jesus heard this, he healed the servant. Boom, done. No, it says, he says, I have not even seen such faith in all of Israel. Verses 10 to 12, then, are a huge indictment of God's people. So what do these mean? What is Jesus teaching us in what he says to the centurion? It means, ultimately, that it's faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. 
not being part of a special group, not having a certain name or living in a certain area, not even necessarily having great Christian parents, right, and being thinking yourself a son or daughter of the kingdom, those things are not enough. What counts is faith in Jesus Christ. See, many were misunderstanding the Old Testament to think, well, we have an ethnic identity as Jews, and that makes us good before God, and uh, we'll just wait for the Messiah and he'll overthrow these Romans, right? Part of why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, again, shows them their, their fault in interpreting the Old Testament. God, they thought, had chosen Israel, so we must be good. But Jesus says this is false, and in the New, later in the New Testament, Paul reiterates this truth. It's certainly true that Israel, right, as God's people, they did have uh, sort of some special blessings in a sense, right? They were given God's revelation. They had his teaching. They had his prophecy. Jesus is saying, look, of all people, you all should have recognized the Messiah. Of all people, you should have faith. Yet this centurion, this Roman soldier, has greater faith, Jesus says, than he's seen in all of Israel. So what does he say will happen? Well, many Gentiles will be saved and many Jews will not. Again, a very scandalous idea to those listening. When he says many will come from east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying, look, many Gentiles, many from outside of what you think of as God's people, are going to have faith and come in. And in eternity, they're going to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, and many people who think that they're good, right, many people who uh, are, are, are thinking that they're okay will actually be tossed out. And despite what some New Age books or theologians might be saying, Jesus definitely implies that there will be an actual hell with actual torment. But I think this is crucial for us to understand. Jesus is saying something that's very unpopular to those who are listening to him. This type of thing, honestly, that eventually gets him killed, right? But he's highlighting that his message of salvation is for everyone without distinction. It's not just for those who are part of the, the, the Israelites, right? Even the Roman centurion can have faith and be saved. Those who trust in their ethnic background or who trust in a political Messiah will be doomed. Those who assume a Gentile couldn't possibly be right with God are mistaken. It is trust in the Lord that brings peace and spiritual healing and not a place of birth, ethnicity, or anything like that. Thus, after giving his indictment of Israel... And once again, showing that he is, is spreading this gospel for all, not just ethnic Jews. He does, in fact, heal the servant. Interestingly, given all that he said, the actual healing, again, takes place fairly quickly. It's almost like an afterthought, right? Again, his healings and miracles, they teach us something. And here we are taught that Jesus has come for Jews and Gentiles. Those with faith in him are part of his kingdom. So thus far, we've seen two outcasts from the community, a leper and a Gentile uh, be, uh, demonstrate humility and faith. Jesus has shown that he has authority over leprosy and over suffering or paralysis. And let's now look at one more miracle story from this passage. I'll read verses 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what, this, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So once again, we see Jesus with authority over sickness, and that could really be true for all that we've seen, right? Jesus has authority over leprosy, suffering, fever, sickness, demons, whatever it might be. 
Just like the previous two sections, here we see Jesus healing. We see that he is sovereign over this fever that Peter's mother-in-law has. Here again, we don't see him healing a high-ranking Jewish official. He doesn't praise some Pharisee for their humility or faith. We don't seem, see those who are seemingly powerful among God's people being healed. Rather, we see a humble woman, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, being healed. In her case, we don't see any specific markers of humility or faith prior to her being healed. But it says Jesus touched her and she was healed. And then after healing her, she demonstrates faith by getting up and serving him. She doesn't get up and do her own thing. She doesn't say, thanks a lot for healing me. I'm going to go live for myself now. No, she rose up and began to serve Jesus. And once again, I'm struck by the relationship between asking and faith and healing and the, the will of God. She didn't ask Jesus the way others did, but he healed her. I'm reminded of a place like John 5, where there are many, many there who need to be healed, and Jesus chooses one. When the leper asked, if you will, the reality was that Jesus had a perfect will and sometimes chooses to heal and sometimes doesn't, and here he did. He once again went to someone marginalized by society and healed her. The verses after that, 16 and 17, are something of a summary statement of what happened afterwards. We know from John and from other places that God, Jesus did a lot more things than could possibly have been written down. So we see here Matthew saying, look, that evening a lot more people came and Jesus healed a lot of others. So once again, we should be struck by those stories that Matthew did tell. He specifically told us the story about a leper, about a centurion, about Peter's mother-in-law, in order to once again show us that uh, Jesus' mission was to all, even those who were the outcasts. And we can see from verses 16 and 17 why the crowds are following Jesus. Many were, who were oppressed by demons and who were sick were healed, and we see Jesus with authority over all of it. It's not a surprise then that many people want to follow this guy, right? And we also see that Matthew quotes Isaiah 53. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And what does this mean? Does it mean that Jesus is bound then to heal everyone's sickness? Will he heal every bodily ailment? Well, yes and no. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised that everything will go well in our life on earth. In numerous places, one that we'll look at in just a second, Christians are promised hardship. And also, I think we do much harm to those who are faithfully suffering with an illness if we teach them that, well, God has promised that you know, if they have enough faith, they will be healed. So in one sense, no. But in another sense, yes. Jesus absolutely heals every sickness, every disease, every fever. And we know that in eternity, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. The curse will no longer be over us and we won't get sick. This is what Isaiah 53 refers to. It refers to Christ's atonement on the cross. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. So yes, we are healed. We are healed uh, not primarily physically, but spiritually. And if now you want to see Jesus' healing work, look to the cross. Jesus takes on our curse. He takes on the punishment and suffering due from it onto himself. And by faith, then, we get his righteousness. By the death and suffering of Jesus, we can be made right with God. But we must have faith in Jesus. Again, while on earth we aren't promised uh, a good and easy life, we aren't promised physical healing from every ailment, 
We haven't been promised health, wealth, and prosperity, but we know that Jesus on the cross has borne the weight of our sin. He took on our illnesses. He took on our disease. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. So back in Matthew chapter 8, once again, it's no wonder that the crowds are enthusiastically following him. And as we move to the last verses we'll look at today, verses 18 to 22, I want you to remember back what we talked about at the beginning. What would you do to gain a following? We've already seen Jesus do some things that look a little bit strange to us, right? He told the leper, don't tell anyone what has happened. It's a far cry from share this with your followers for, you know, likes and subscriptions. He plainly criticized those among whom he lived, right? He tells them, I haven't seen this faith in all of Israel when talking about a Roman soldier. Not the sort of thing that was going to gain him popularity. Yet he still had crowds. And now we'll see him go a bit further. Let's read these uh, last few verses, 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And here we see that Jesus has authority over you and over me. In verse 18, he's continuing his travels, and we see a scribe come to him. Uh, this scribe, in verse 19, he seems to say the right thing, right? He says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And to be sure, that is what we should be saying. That is a good thing to say. We should be saying to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus' response demonstrates that he, unlike us, knows what was in the man's heart. Jesus recognized that this man had not counted the cost of following Jesus. He was excited at the prospect of healing lepers, alleviating disease, casting out demons, but he was not prepared for the hardships of following Jesus. Jesus tells him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does that mean? It means following Jesus will be difficult. It means that if you're following Jesus, you may not know where you'll lay your head at night. It means that faith is required to follow Jesus, and faith isn't faith if it's easy, if it's what you would be doing anyway. He tells the scribe that following him will not just be filled with joyful days of healing and happiness and great crowds who are really excited, no, it means that there will be difficulty. There will be uncertainty. There might be feelings of loneliness, sleepless nights. Unlike foxes or birds who have some certainty about where they may rest, followers of Jesus are signing up for a certain level of uncertainty in the world. And this is why our faith is in the one who is certain. Our faith is in the one who gives peace and comfort in the midst of that uncertainty. When you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus, to Jesus, and for Jesus. Not for the, the hope of great and fun and super prosperous days ahead. And this should again remind us of the ills of the prosperity gospel, right? Sometimes health, wealth, prosperity gospel, this idea that following Jesus will be easy. Jesus makes clear here that it will be hard. So you should follow him and always count the cost. This next person, who it tells us is a disciple, says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. It seems like a reasonable request, right? I need to go, my loved one passed away, I need to go bury my father. Now, I read some commentaries, they debate whether this means his father had just died, and so he needed to hold a proper funeral and then wait an appointed time of mourning. 
Others say no. He's saying he wants to wait until his father dies and then he'll get an inheritance and have more financial flexibility. But really, either way, the point is, he is there's a delay, right? He's saying, I'll follow you, Jesus, just not right now. I've got some important things to do first. And at first glance, Jesus' response seems to lack compassion, right? If I asked you to come do something with me and you said, I had a family member pass away, can I at least go to the funeral? And I said, nope, come on. That would seem kind of insensitive, right? So why does Jesus say this? Well, uh, he wants them to, to, to not wait, right? There will not be a convenient time to follow Jesus. The human heart will always have things that you want to do first or things that get in the way. And not every one of those things is bad in and of itself. Burying your loved ones is not an inherently bad thing, right? Um, uh, if someone you love passes away, it's not bad to, to bury them, right? But even good things, when they get in the way of uh, serving the Lord, are wicked. When something good, even something such as burying our loved ones, is an excuse not to serve the Lord, it is bad. So why then does Jesus seem to lack compassion here? Why does he speak so bluntly and go out of his way to talk about how hard it will be to follow him, even when there are good reasons not to? It's because he is the one in authority. The reason it would be horrible for me to say something like that is I don't have that same authority over anyone's life, right? But Jesus does. He has authority over you and me. He has authority to tell us when uh, and how to follow him. He has authority over all things. That was our main theme today. Jesus has authority over all sickness, disease, suffering, and even our lives. I think David Platt in his commentary put it well. He said, talking about this section, he says, when Jesus speaks, leprosy, paralysis, and fever obey. Question is, do you obey? Do I obey? The same one who has authority over these diseases has authority over our lives. He can tell you when to follow him, even if you don't know where you'll lay your head. He can tell you when to follow him, even if you need to bury a loved one. He can tell you when to follow him whenever he'd like. And the question is, will you obey? As we close, let us thank God for Christ's healing work. Thanks to the cross, we can all witness a miracle. When someone who's lost in their sins professes faith in Jesus Christ and is saved, that, friends, is a miracle. It is a supernatural healing uh, for eternity. And for those of you in Christ suffering with sickness or disease or who know someone in Christ suffering with sickness and disease, it's important to remember that God hears your prayers. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and you've prayed for healing, the answer isn't no. If you have placed your faith in Christ, the answer is at minimum not yet. Because we know for those in Christ there will come a day when they will have a new glorified body and be free from all the pains of this earthly life. This week I listened to a pastor give a talk on these verses and it was very powerful coming from him. He had been suffering from a chronic illness for about 12 years he spoke much of the trouble, uh, the struggle he had of listening to people tell him if he just had more faith, he would be healed. And as he walked through the verses and told his story, he constantly reminded those listening that God worked through him in ways he could have never expected or never seen without his illness. He reminded us of Paul who pleaded with God to take away his thorn in the flesh, yet God did not. Not because God is unloving, but because God said his power is made perfect in our weakness. So let us remember to approach God knowing that he can do all things, but let us approach with hearts submissive to his will. Let's remember Christ, who, com who commanded disease, who demonstrated authority over all of creation, and exercises authority over us. 
Let us be those who obey, who joyfully obey. Today, let us remember the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life and took the punishment for our sin that we deserved. Our sin was placed on him, and he rose from the grave. And today, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to do so. I, or Graham, or, or Dylan, or many others would be happy to talk to you about that. But you can put your faith in Christ and have your sins on him and have his righteousness to you. And church, let us submit to Christ our authority. Let us never complain about his call in our lives, but rather, let us remember that he has bought us by his redemption and eternal healing. He bids us to come and follow him, so let us do so gladly. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.